welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior-serving professionals and providers, with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Okay. Oh my God, are we back? (laughs) Back from Um, hibernation. Yeah, it's like a post-COVID. We're like the post-public health emergency first episode back. Yeah. So, Amy, how about you tell folks why we were gone for two years? I might even tell them why we were gone for almost three years. So we were gone because of, I'm going to just say COVID, and both of us had real jobs, and we went out into the world and discovered things, and I don't know. I don't think we ran out of stuff to talk about. I don't know. Maybe we were just lazy. Why do you think we were gone for two years? Well, I took a big corporate job that did. Yeah, that means that's it. We took a W-2 up. job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did too. So <laughs> we've been gone for a little bit of time, but I think we're back to kind of re-explore where we were and now where we are in the world of Medicare. And I think a lot has changed since we have made a podcast, Alex. I don't know if I can describe to you how much I've learned, how much you've learned, how much the world has changed in front of us. It's like you blink and everything changed. Massively, massively. I mean, we COVID happened and I worked at Optum in an, at a national level. I learned a massive amount about how value-based care actually works and happens. And, and AI hit us a couple of months ago. So it feels like everything is changing really rapidly. And so, you know, Amy and I have been talking a bunch throughout these last few years, and we continue to get lots of fan mail from everybody. So thank you for all that. Thanks, but, super fans. <laughs> but we are super excited to get this podcast going again. And yeah. uh, yes, yeah. let's take it away. Let's take it away. And, I, and I'll just add that in the past two years, I have had the, the lucky opportunity to be the chief medical officer of an agency that oversees a lot of things within the SDOH world, post-acute world, hospice specifically, home care specifically in the private duty world. And it's been a real, it's been a real eye-opening experience. And I've learned a lot sort of exploring down the part A space, which had not been my usual cup of tea, but now I'm a little bit more familiar with that. So I think we should jump into our topic du jour, Alex. What do you think it is? What should we talk about? Should we talk about like, I don't know, what everybody's talking about, which is not chat GPT, but (laughs) maybe value-based care? Yeah. I got to say, like, before working at Optum, I didn't really truly understand what value-based care was. I thought it was, I don't know, BS of some sort. But it turns out that I, I think value-based care is the care model for the future of the U.S. healthcare system. And what I didn't fully appreciate before working at a company at the epicenter of value-based care is that the value-based care model, especially the model through Medicare Advantage with delegated risk to medical groups, is probably the one model where incentives are aligned the best as far as I've seen in the U.S. healthcare system. Because that's where a lot of waste happens, right? When when incentive vectors are like pointing in opposite directions, right? Where 
like the patient wants to get healthier, but the healthier you get, the more money the hospital loses, right? So that's not like right, the right. It's like not making model, sense. Right, doesn't make sense, right? So what is the model in which the incentives are better aligned? And what I saw working at Optum is where the incentives for the patient, the provider, and the health plan were all aligned really, really well in a way that made a lot of sense. And I was actually blown away by how, what an amazing job a lot of the leaders and executives and operational people within an organization like Optum are doing to really provide better care, more effective care at lower cost. It was, it was like the antithesis of what I had seen in my work as an emergency medicine doctor, pure fee-for-service within a pure fee-for-service hospital setting, right? Yeah. This was, this was really eye-opening and it was very, very different from now, what I hear people say about just regular health plans or insurance companies, right? So, you know, we probably be a good idea to give our audience a refresher on how Medicare Advantage works and how these delegated medical groups like Optum operate and yeah. how it's different yeah. from a yeah. regular right. insurance plan, right? Well, I want to, well, what I want to do is because you have the benefit of having lived in that world for two years, and I almost think there's a tremendous amount of vocabulary and, and nuanced words that suggest things, but I want to get some clarity for our listeners, actually. So I'm going to go back almost to the beginning of what you were saying. You use the words value-based care. I thought we would just actually dissect just those terms for just a second. When something is value-based, it means that there is something that is better about one thing than another thing. What is the value that a lot of these companies are looking for? It's, are you doing a good job, right? And then you basically get paid for doing a better job. How are organizations that are considered to be value-based companies, how are they creating value? Where's the value? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... The value is the value, the financial value that's generated is by reducing unnecessary waste, essentially, and yeah. reducing com medical complications that generate the unnecessary waste and providing care in a more efficient and effective manner. So it only works in a model where the, the system which is the providers and the care managers and everybody where they have a financial stake in the outcome, right? They, they can either make more or less money depending on how good of a job they do in taking care of the patient. So everybody has to be aligned, which means that the current structure for people under original Medicare, which is where you've spent an enormous amount of time talking about that in our earlier episodes, this is so distinctly different from that. In that type of environment, you go in to a patient comes in, you do things with them, to them, talk to them, you get paid for what you do. In some ways, you're going to get paid in this model for what you don't do. So 
you actually save money by doing less. Is that basically what's happening here is that people are challenged to find the incentive to not perform a lot of tests? Mm, or I, I think that's actually a, a, just a really small piece of it because that's more just the regular insurance model, right? Got it. So I, I think it's a really good question. How is a delegated medical group like Optum actually different from just a health plan? Where I, I would say a regular health plan, yes, their incentive is generally do less, right? Fewer tests, fewer medications. What I saw at Optum is actually quite different. It's doing a ton more but doing it in a coordinated matter, manner mm -hmm. with a coordination. Yes, with a specific goal of actually like, does this keep the patient healthier? Does this is this the better treatment? Is this the better protocol? Is this the better is this the better outcome? Like I, okay. I cannot collaboration, desiloing. Yes. That is seems to be what you're saying. It's yeah, collaboration so and desiloing. Connecting the dots, right? In the fee-for-service world, the PCP is doing his or her own thing. The uh, every ologist, all the ologists have their own like little sphere, and they don't interconnect. And there's right. not really many systems in which to do that. So, in some ways, in a value-based model, when there's an incentive to desilo, collaborate, can everybody's operating in the same continuum? There's communication. Yeah, yeah. There's better communication. How, I mean, what what have you seen? And all of this that is better communication. Like, how do they communicate with each other better? Yeah. So, like, let me just give an example. I, you know, my job at Optum was to help develop models for reducing unnecessary utilization of our members in the hospital, right? So, unnecessary okay. hospitalizations, uh -huh. unnecessary inpatient stays, unnecessary long stays, unnecessary ED visits. Or low quality visits, right? Where like, sure, they need they need a hospital type level of care. But even when they stay in the hospital, they're not getting the, the actual treatments they need, right? So one of the things that we, you know, we implemented was a system by which when our members arrive in the ED, we, we would actually get real-time notifications that, you know, patient Mary just arrived in the ED with chest pain and we created teams that were sitting in the background monitoring this, and then they would pull out the relevant medical history of that patient, the recent EKG results, stress echo tests, all that stuff, package it together and call the ED doctor and say, that's our patient, and here's her most recent medical history, and here's her, who her cardiologist is, and if you need us to help you, we can arrange for X, Y, and Z, a next day stress test of this or this or that. And can you imagine the reaction from the ED docs and the patient? Normally they have no connectivity with like the outpatient ecosystem. And now they're getting direct phone calls saying, hey, here's everything you need to know. Here's the resources. How can we make this easier for you to provide high, high value care? Okay. And I, I, I'm freaking out only because it sounds like idyllic. I mean, this is the, I think we all want this and there's so much learned helplessness in the non-value-based system where you're like, well, I guess I'm never going to know and I'm never going to get in touch with that cardiologist. I'm never going to, you know, be able to collaborate in the way that maybe be optimized. Why is this not everywhere currently or where is it? 
Yeah. Because I don't see it in my day to day. Well, so, what is the incentive? It all, a lot of this comes down to incentives. What is the incentive for the regular fee-for-service primary care doctor to build out all of the infrastructure and pay his staff or her staff to do all this? There isn't, right? So, so, so how does it get jump-started? I mean, the, I, 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 because you've been living in it so much, it's almost like I see where we sit here and I see what you just described. And I'm thinking, how do you transform a system even just like one little town from being a completely fee-for-service world into being more of a value-based environment. How does that happen? Yeah. Well, so I think what you see out there is you see two things going on. You see Medicare and CMS slowly start to move everybody along the value-based like trajectory. You know, they had they had like upside gain share, upside models, then up and downside the risk models, ACOs. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's like this uh, trajectory of getting people to the full risk. But meanwhile, the MA model with delegated medical groups has been full risk for a while now. And that's where you see, I think, the, the best evidence that getting everybody incentivized the right way to provide high quality care actually really works. Because these kind of, the stepwise functions that everybody else is going through, I'll tell you my view on all this. Yeah, like, give me your view because yeah, I'm going so to ask you a really basic, I'm going to keep asking you really basic questions because yeah. if like I have them, I always think, oh, other people have them too. But give me your, give okay, me your here, here's spiel. Here's my view all this. Okay. Let's take ourselves out of this whole context of, of Medicare and just imagine we're running a business, right? You used to run your own like house calls business, right? Yep. And, and so you have to think about like, how am I going to pay my employees, right? And there's two, like there's a couple of general models. There's a pure like hourly rate where they can just sit there and do nothing and they get paid, right? And yep. on the other end of the spectrum is like an eat what you kill where they only yep. make money if per they click. actually perform, right? Per, we call that per click. I right. call, I call yeah. that per click, right. yeah. And so, and then there's everything in between where you're like, ah, you know, it's a little, I, I can't put them on a pure per click model. So I'm going to create an incentive plan for them. Right, low base get, with yeah. incentives. Yeah. yeah, so if they do the X, Y, and Z, they get Fails. some bonuses, right? Yeah. And so that's how this has all played out in the, in the U.S. healthcare system, where the MA side with their delegated medical groups is on a pure, they're, they're taking global risk. They're taking full risk for pretty much, almost with, except for some carve outs, for the whole total medical spend of the patient, right? So they have to think about everything, transportation to your doctor's office and prescription prices. And they have to really take in the whole picture and solve the whole thing because they're taking the full risk on, on all of that expense for the patient. And that works. I saw it. It's amazing, right? And But what's happening on the fee-for-service side with all of these intermediary models, you know, all the ACOs and MIPS and MACRA and all these other things where there's a little bit of dollars in play, here's what I've noticed is that these intermediary programs are so complicated because they're trying to like, you know, there's, there's kind of in between with a lot of potential for gamesmanship, they've become so complicated that a lot of players can't even figure out the rules of the game. So they either don't play it 
or they just, they just throw up they their just, hands. Uh, they just, just throw up their hands right? and yeah, say whatever. I'll take the four percent hit, the two percent hit, yeah. and some people will. Okay, so let me so, let I, me yeah yeah go ahead. Well, I just I want to keep going back to. Well, first of all, your impressions are are kind of profound because it's funny. I remember when you started at Optum, you were like, I want to learn and understand the data, the analytics, the mentality, the philosophy. There was a whole slew of details that you wanted to fully understand. And I think, let, let me let me reflect back for just a second. You talk about something called delegated medical groups. Are you saying that MA plans, lots of different MA plans that might be offered, like, hey, this one or ABC Medical Medicare Advantage and XYZ Medicare Advantage, they actually sell a product and that, you, that Optum actually cr- implements that product. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So the health white labeled. It's a white labeled healthcare plan <laughs> that's value based. Yeah. So oh my god. <laughs> so half half the U.S. Medicare population is now in an MA plan instead of fee for service, right? I think we yep. crossed that threshold this year. Yeah, the fifty fifty. Yep. And sixty forty. So those health plans. Imagine. So an MA health plan is just the same as almost the same as any other insurance company, except the. The, the payment for the member is coming from the federal government, right? So CMS is saying, okay, this used to be a fee-for-service Medicare patient. Now it's MA. So, and they've signed up, let's say with Aetna, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aetna's MA plan. Mm-hmm. So now they're going to pay Aetna $900, you know, per member per month uh, to take full global risk on that patient for all of their professional. So uh, A, B, or, and D. It's an ABD plan. Yep, yeah. A and B, plus or minus D. But plus usually, or minus D. Yeah, I would say usually it's 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 included. Okay. And they're getting a certain capitated payment every month. So now put yourself in the shoes of that now, okay? So now you're getting 900 bucks a month mm-hmm. to take care of patient Mary. And you you are at risk for all of her medical expenses, including hospital stays, prescriptions, doctor visits, specialty, imaging, radiology. You're like, okay, huh, I'm taking a lot of risk here. What, how am I going to manage that risk? And the old way that health plans would do is just denials, right? I'm just going to deny care that's, that's expensive, right? But the new model is say, okay, why Mary lives in, let's say, Lexington, Kentucky. Let me find a medical group that's high quality there. Plus, I have like 10,000 other MA members in that same region. And I'm going to tell Mary, now that you join my MA plan, here are the doctors you can choose to be your primary care doctor, okay? It's this one medical group that I just bought in, uh, and I'm going to buy that medical group in Lex- Lexington, Kentucky. I'm going to buy them. Ah. Or oh. I'm either going to buy them or I'll do, go into some sort of partnership with them. But let's say I buy them because that's what Optum does. They buy medical groups, okay? And then I'm going to tell the doctors there, listen, you keep seeing your fee-for-service patients, but I'm also going to assign you certain Medicare Advantage members. And I'm getting 900 bucks a month for patient Mary. I'm going to hold on to $100 of that. And there's an 800 left. And I'm going to give you, Dr. Smith, that $800 and now tag your it. I'm delegating my risk to you. And now you are fully responsible for all of the total medical spend of that member. So if you, through your care coordination team and nurses and everybody can together keep Mary's cost at $700 a 
per, uh, per month, then that $100 delta is yours to put in your pocket, right? So now these doctors and their teams are basically incented to keep Mary healthy. The healthier they keep her. And they're getting a, a nice chunk of change in some ways so that they can go out and get the care managers, can go out and get a dietitian, yes. can then go buy these sort of these services that they can keep close to them that they used to have to be like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, all right, well, maybe there's like a dietitian down the street yeah. and I don't know. Oh, maybe I forgot to offer you a dietitian. So they're, they, you're basically getting a chunk of change to bring in the services that we all know should be in the care collaborative yes. with that patient. But we had so much learned helplessness before we couldn't really see through the forest and we, could, we couldn't see to the end because it was just too complicated. But in some ways, if you say money buys these types of services, then it, it's brought to you. Yeah. So basically, so all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense, right? So, so now let's say the patient, patient calls at 4.30 p.m. The office is getting ready to close. And the patient calls the office and says, I'm having this issue, right? In a normal world, the, doc the office says, sorry, we're closing up for the day. Like, and so what does the patient do? They go to the ER, right? Yeah. Here, the doctor is like, oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. Get me on the phone with her. Let me see if I can solve the problem over the phone. And it doesn't even matter anymore. Like, is there a billing code for me to bill? No, he's, uh, the doctor is getting, yep. the doctor is getting the 800 bucks a month, right? Regardless or the of their the 17 CPT codes and then like yeah. all, okay. So I'm going to repeat back to you because I love to do that because you usually do that to me and I'm going to do it to you. Anybody who's heard our other podcasts know we play this little game. Yes. So what you're saying is that any company that wants to start an MA plan could do that. And what they're going to do is they're going to get members. People are going to sign up and say, yes, I absolutely want to be in your Medicare Advantage plan. And that Medicare Advantage plan is going to be like, row, row, we don't actually necessarily have all the providers or the smooth, sort of the smoothness of, of how to provide that care. So we're going to contract to a company like Optum. And then Optum's going to say, oh, well, I'm going to take a fraction of the dollars that Medicare is going to pay that new MA plan, they're going to take a fraction of those dollars and then go out and make it happen. And yeah. then they're going to incentivize all these different people along the way. Well, specifically, it sounds like the primary care doctor in this case, and I'm sure there's some sort of carve outs for other different types of things, but that the doctor then gets a chunk of money in order to provide the services that they might need to provide extra value. And then they get to keep the difference between sort of a little bit of a carve out that came from the, the, the delegated practice. And then they get to keep the, the part that they don't spend. But what happens if it's a super sick patient, Alex? I mean, 800 bucks we know is not everybody's amount of money that they get from Medicare. Plus, aren't there people paying money to be part of that insurance plan? So like, how does that all work when there's yeah. somebody who's really sick? And also you have the, the, the members themselves are paying money to be part of this insurance plan, correct? Yeah, so, okay, so uh, several questions there. Let yeah. me first tackle the question of, aren't different members different costs? And that's absolutely true. So, so the way that's handled is through what's called risk adjustment, right? And what that means is every year, the, the 
primary care doctor needs to do the annual wellness visit with the patient and document all of the different conditions that the patient has. And these different conditions through something called HCC scoring add up to a certain risk adjustment score. And that score then translates into a potential increase in that monthly payment that gets paid by CMS to the health plan. And then, you know, trickles down. Then trickles down through the delegated. So where a, the average MA patient may have a risk adjustment score of one, and that could translate into about $900 PM, PM, a relatively sick patient with let's say end-stage renal disease and a few other conditions might get a risk adjustment score of about 2.0. And that it's, it's, it's roughly just multiplied. Now there's a lot more detail into it, which we, 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 I'm not an expert in actually, but, but I know there's a lot more detail into it, but roughly if your risk adjustment score is double, so it's two instead of one that typically translates into about double the monthly payment coming in. A lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of, a lot of details. And I think it's important for anybody who's listening because this is where like a little knowledge might actually help somebody who's listening to this. And I'm going to, this is kind of like a little bit of a and a So if you don't know the answer, I'm totally good with it because I think that there's a lot that we can offer the listener maybe in our show notes about this. But if somebody is a 65-year-old, otherwise healthy person, is their HCC score like one? I believe so. And then every time they have a different chronic disease, it's sort of an additive risk. And then that adds a dollar value to the amount that CMS then pays the health plan that then trickles down through. Yeah. And I do want to say, like, when we say it gets paid to the doctor in these delegated agreements, it really gets paid to the medical group. The medical group then decides how to actually compensate their doctors, right? And so, yeah, some doctors are still on an hourly rate. So just realize we're really talking about the medical group. Right, right. And I I like to translate a little bit of these scores into into, into sort of dollar values. So for every HCC score of one, it's about $10,000 to the group. Per year, yeah. Yeah. So call it about $900 PM, PM about, yeah, so roughly. I think that's a right. Good, so like, that when you, envelope. right. So then when you double an HCC score, the health plan is getting about $20,000. And then when they get an HCC score of three, the health plan is getting $30,000. So I think that it's really interesting how the HCC scores are so impactful in multiples of thousands of dollars. Correct. Yeah. And, um, and that very sick patients who have multiple chronic diseases, you actually can do a lot with $30,000, but you have to do it well if the patient has CHF, COPD, and diabetes, which may be what's happening there. Yeah. And keep in mind, so like, like this is what the MA world has been in the news for in the last couple of months, which is the impact of documenting all these additional conditions has, is so huge on the revenue side. Mm-hmm. That that's been the major focus of a lot of these MA plans over the last, you know, five to 10 years. It has been mostly focused on risk adjustment, right? Let's make sure we document every single Every single problem, correct. Right. And yeah. so then the federal government's like, wait a second, I thought Mary was only going to cost me $1,200 a month, but now every MA patient is costing me like 20% more 
than what I pr- thought it would be, right? And 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 I think so. My, There's some ga- and people are worried that this is a that they're gaming the system. Yeah. That there may be fraud and abuse, all of those types of things. Because if you go from like, and I think of the world, and this is a very strange way of thinking about it, because I look at lists of ICD-10 codes all the time. Yeah. And then I look at them and I see what all they all mean. And I feel like it tells a patient's story like, oh, this is a older person who has CHF, who's had, you know, poorly controlled diabetes and now has CKD and sort of tells a little bit of a story. But imagine that there was no incentive for doing proper ICD-10 coding. You find yourself in a value-based world and you're like, oh, oh my God, I got to like get myself together here. And now I'm going to do a much better job with my ICD-10 coding because those, those ICD-10 codes translate into a higher HCC score. So then I'm going to get more money. I can see how like there may even be like a woodwork effect where there had never been great coding. And now suddenly everybody's paying attention to those things. So yeah. I, I can sort of see why regulators and those who pay attention to these things would be like, wow, like last week she was this. But now somebody came in and did like a head to toe and like really cared. And now they have an HCC score that's way higher. I always find it amusing when the government creates a game and then they're surprised that people play the game. <laughs> what did you wait? Think? What? Yeah. What did you think people were gonna do? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it, it is actually amazing. And and I I'm sorry for always going down to ground level because I I have some experience in all of this. Like when I started my house calls practice, the HCC scoring thing was was a was a big deal, and there were very few people that could go out into homebound people's homes to do this HCC scoring for MA members that were in my general geographic area. And there were always contracts to be had because I had nurse practitioners that knew how to be in people's homes. And so they were looking for ways to to say, well, this is a skill set. You know how to go to somebody's home. But could you also go out and maybe go and do essentially what was this annual wellness visit, this annual sort of HCC scoring event, which would then pre-predicate what the next year's payments would look like for that particular MA plan. And it was really interesting to me. They would, th- there was a lot of reasons why I, I didn't end up doing this, but I learned a tremendous amount about it. And in doing so realized when somebody goes from a fee-for-service environment into this MA world, there is an enormous incentive to keep track of stuff. Yeah, You have to keep track because if you don't keep track, it flies away like feathers in the wind. Yeah. So HCC scoring. So it's it's complex. So let me ask another question, because I think HCC scoring is really important. It clearly decides how sick a patient is going into the next year. And and then, but let me ask this question, because if that's the only thing that an MA plan gets, when a Medicare beneficiary decides they want to opt into MA and they pay money, wh- where is that money going? Like, you know, Part B costs, you know, 150, 200 bucks per month that goes to the federal government, comes out of someone's Social Security, whatever. Where does the money that you would pay for an MA plan go to. Yeah, that goes to the health plan. So it goes yeah, to the if, health plan. If, if there's a premium, then it goes to the health plan. Yeah. And there's a whole complicated bidding process to to win these MA contracts. And there's actually a few good webinars on it that are coming up. I believe there's one in June that I can yeah. try to put into. So th- there's so, a lot yeah. more that goes into all of this kind of the the bidding and the pricing and all that. So yeah, this is the super kind of superficial view of it. But I, I want to get to what I think is actually really interesting. So so government created the risk adjustment game. People played it. And now there is downward pressure against all the health plans and the delegated medical groups. 
that this risk adjustment game has gotten a little out of hand and let's rein it in, okay? So I think the reason that's really interesting is what that means for all these delegated medical groups and the health plans is now they're going to have they're going to have caps on how much they can play the risk adjustment game to boost their bottom line, right? And now they have to hmm. focus more on affordability, meaning oh, and and care and outcomes. So in the past, ninety percent of their focus was like, how do we do risk adjustment better, right? Which doesn't really benefit the patient that much. But now they have to say, okay, now that we can't make as much money through risk adjustment, we really do have to focus even more. They were doing, a, like I would say Optum was doing an amazing job on like the care coordination and, and all that. But now there's even more reason for them to invest heavily in that, right? Because now if they want to maintain their profit margins, um, it's going to have to do come through better outcomes on the actual like health outcomes and coordination and reducing unnecessary utilization and waste and all of that. So I think with the downward pressure of risk adjustment, there's going to be 10x, if not more, focus on doing what's right for the patient, providing better care. And I, I think that is going to be a major instigator of, for massive amount of innovation and startups and all sorts of like great solutions for patients. So I think this is going to be really exciting next 10 That's years. That, that is really interesting. Now, I am, I'm going to ask this random question. This is definitely an opinion question to some degree. But of all these sort of like better outcomes and reducing utilization, what percentage of that thinking is actually just reduced ED visits and reduced hospitalization? Like we talk so much about like yeah. reducing utilization, but like I feel like 99% of it in, in my mind is really just keep them out of the ED, keep them out of the hospital, keep them out of the ED, keep them out of the hospital. Like that becomes this mantra where like keep your 30-day readmissions down. However you can figure out how to do that, whatever you can wrap around that patient, services, new tech, you know, um, lots of touch points, whatever you can do, addressing social determinants of health, whatever it might be, it's really about ED and hospitals. Are there other types of big spends that a health plan can look to to reduce that sort of, yeah, you know, the, yeah. So tell me yeah, about so that. What's the I, value I problem of that? The two big buckets that come to mind are pharmacy and surgeries, especially like outpatient surgeries. So on the pharmacy side, there's a massive amount of waste where, you know, you have the, the doctors are pushing certain brand name drugs that are hundred times more expensive when a similar generic could work, work would work perfectly fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, so th that's one huge category of waste. And then the other big bucket, I would say there's a lot of both unnecessary surgeries. And there's more and more evidence coming out how a lot of these surgeries, whether they're laminectomies or others, you know, there's Dr. Ken Cohen at, at Optum who does a lot, a lot, lot of this kind of, I would say, research and investigation for this sort of waste. There are so many unnecessary surgeries and and tests that we do in healthcare. And then even when you get the, let's say you do need the surgery, there's a lot of waste in in terms of the site the site of the surgery. So are you getting in a hospital or an ambulatory surgery center? Which which hardware are you using? Like that could have a 10x impact on the cost of the surgery if you're doing it 
with this orthopedist who only uses this hardware in the hospital versus using a, you know, a different orthopedist in an ambulatory surgery center and, 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 and with potentially even better outcomes in the ambulatory surgery center, right? But like, how do you guide the patient towards the better option, right? How do you, how do you actually do that? So let me ask a question. Is, that is in the value-based system. Clearly, you are making choices. Fiduciary responsibility of the delegated health group is to maximize good outcomes and reduce the cost of those good outcomes. Is that a, is that where the word bundled payment comes in or is it a, is that a different word? Cause you know, I think people hear that word bundled payment come up all the time or is that outside of the MA world? Yeah. That, as far as my understanding is that's outside. That was along this trajectory of t getting towards values, like Got it. the types of value models. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So the, the, that term, it gets very conflated in my little world, but I, I want to go back to something that you said. So you were talking about um, medications. So I always think to myself and anybody who's heard me talk about hospice, I think of hospice in some sort of ways under the original Medicare model as the original value-based model, right? Medicare yeah. pays a per diem yeah. and then you have to pay your staff, you have to pay for, you know, supplies and durable medical equipment and medications and all the different things that is required to take care of that patient with a single dollar value per day, like a per diem rate. And I will tell you that medications is in and of itself one of the most difficult things to do. Um, in hospice, we focus a lot on, you know, medication reconciliation, but also deprescribing. And we are often blinded to the cost of some of these meds. And so I appreciate the fact that this is not just a problem in what we do, but in any value-based environment. So medications are considered to be a type of runaway cost. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Go you ahead. know, as I think uh, you asked, like, where are the big buckets of like financial opportunity? I want to add that, like, in trying to achieve reduced unnecessary hospital stays, one of the big trends that I saw, and you and I have discussed a ton, is that that doesn't mean patients don't need care, right? It just means they don't necessarily need or benefit from the type and level of care that's in the hospital, a lot of times that care can be better or less expensively given in the home, right? Yes. Right. And so yes. I, I think transitioning a lot of acute care and post-acute care to the home is probably one of the biggest trends in healthcare for the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I it's I'm so glad you brought that up because of course that's where my heart is, that's where my brain always lives is the is this care in the home. And just to sort of go through a a general sense for the listeners out there, this is not an insignificant amount of benef Medicare beneficiaries. I think the data is that between 5 and 15% of all Medicare beneficiaries meet some version of homebound criteria, which means they actually never leave their home or they only sort of leave their home. And maybe just for doctor's visits and, you know, things that might be considered to be essential. That is an enormous number of people. It's billions and billions of spend. And that the average cost of somebody who's homebound is significantly higher. Their HCC scores are always much higher. And I think that that's where, you know, you and I sit in a space where 
We have a lot of people approach us with ideas. Hey, what about this? What about this? I'd say 95% of folks coming to me right now with these great startup ideas who want to understand what it looks like are approaching it from a home-based mentality. How do we address the needs of these home-based folks in a way that um, assists family caregivers, assists you know, agencies that go into provide private duty help? And it's all about everybody's trying to solve this problem of collaboration, which interestingly enough, the value-based marketplace is sort of like looking at, but I think sometimes it doesn't extend past some of the post-acute care. It's like hospital, nursing home, assist, maybe a little assisted living, but the home is like this great unknown. And so people are trying to wrap their head around it and then trying to figure out how to feed back into the value-based market. Like, how do I get the family caregiver to be a data collector so that I can feed it back through so that the doctor can get some information so that the doctor can then say, I'm doing a really good job. So then, so then, so then, so then, so then. So it's, there's a lot of complexities in this because I can see right now there's like eight layers between by the time the the health system has the delegated grip, like imagine that the family giver becomes part of that value prop. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting, there's a lot of really interesting opportunities out there in that, especially if you think of what the home is. Yeah. So I think, I think if you combine the two massive trends then of care in the home plus connecting the dots in mm -hmm. a way, in a way that there's a financial incentive now, right? Um, I mean, you put those two things together. It's a really interesting time, I would say, for innovators in, in healthcare. I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I it's funny because it's not that I think that everybody's trying to solve the same problem, but they're all looking at a similar problem through very different lenses. A lot of people who have been in tech space for other things have had a, like, honestly, a lot of this is anecdotal. They'll be in a situation where they're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't even believe that X, Y, and Z happened to my mom. And then this doctor didn't talk to that doctor who didn't talk to this doctor who didn't talk. And then they build an entire platform around that one thing. So I think people are all trying to solve similar problems. And I, 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 you know, I think there will be a great bunch of widgets out there that people can use. And, you know, I will also say this, that there is, you know, I'm finding, I'm finding myself in interesting places as being part of the hospice. And one of them is also in the death care industry, which is even going farther past folks who have actually died, which is, you know, people do die and they, they die on hospice, but understanding how even sort of the funeral home and the death care industry can actually provide assistance to upstream things as well. It's, it's, it's all part of a, a whole continuum of care. I mean, yeah. care, care doesn't end at the time of discharge of a hospital. And I think people are trying to tackle that as well. So let me feed back to you. Cause I, I again, I, it is, yeah. this is not, I entirely intuitive and has not always been entirely intuitive to me just how this works. So basically you start an MA program, you find a bunch of docs or a group that already knows how to do this. They take a capitated payment from, from Medicare based on an HCC score. And then the program basically runs itself in order to create a value for itself and then takes a bit off the top. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly right. I think let, let's tell the audience about kind of our, 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 the new thing that we're launching this week. Oh my gosh, I'm so <laughs> excited. Okay. So I think it's important to sort of introduce the topic, but I'll just say it up front. It's called agingherecom <laughs> Yeah. 
Alex and I spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out how to aggregate ideas and people and and, and, and creating an environment that actually has an intellectual component to it so people can share experiences and become I, I, essentially immediate colleagues with each other. Is, is that sort of what we do? We're connectors. We like yeah. to get people to connect about ideas and connect about information and knowledge that can move, move the system forward, essentially. Yeah. So Aging Here is a newsletter that we're starting specifically focused on the aging in place and aging in the home space. So people, companies, stories, products, and conversations around that. And we're hoping that this is not just a unidirectional newsletter from us to you, but also making it a community where we can both receive and share stories that are generated by you guys about this phenomenon, which we think is just going to grow massively over the next 10 years. And we want to be a part of it and we want to help facilitate it. And, and, and so visit yep. agingheer.com, sign up for the newsletter. Everyone's uh, welcome. <laughs> we're going to be making it better every week. So give us your ideas. You can email us at info at agingheer.com. And you can always also reach us at masteringmedicare.net. That's just great. Alex, I'm so excited to bring together all the different people who might be interested in this. It's awesome. going to be a unique space. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. All, all right. right. See you next up. podcast. Ciao. All right. Bye. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 